It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This time, the science of the Tongan volcano eruption and modelling how societal changes could alter carbon emissions. I'm Nick Petridge Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. On the 15th of January this year, shockwaves went around the world as a volcano in the South Pacific Ocean, close to Tonga, erupted, sending debris high up into the atmosphere. Resulting tsunamis and ash have devastated the nearby islands and prompted a humanitarian crisis. Since then, scientists have been trying to work out exactly what happened during the cataclysmic explosion and what it means for future volcanic risks. Alex Witsey has been writing about these efforts for Nature, and reporter Ariana Remmel has been speaking to her to find out more. Ariana started by asking about the history of the volcano that erupted. This volcano has been active in the past. It had big eruptions in the year 200-ish and around the year 1100-ish. So about every 900 to 1,000 years, it's had a very large explosive eruption. More recently, it's been active several times in the last couple of years. In 2009, it had a small eruption. Again, in 2014, 2015, it had a small eruption. So that's where we were until December of last year when it began erupting again. So we mean, you know, ash plumes going up a little ways, activity in general, nothing major, but big enough that you could tell. So in January, the Tonga Geological Services were warning that This volcano was active. There was ash coming from it. You know, it could do some things that could be bad. In fact, the day before the giant eruption, the Tongan geologists took boats and went over to do a survey. And then on January 15th, fortunately, nobody was there. They'd gone back to Tonga. That's when the enormous planet-altering blast went off. Now, this volcano is a submarine volcano. It's underneath the ocean. I mean, is it common for underwater volcanoes to have this kind of a blast? It is and it isn't. So submarine volcanoes are a big threat. We just don't think about them because they're below the water. We don't necessarily see them. And often when there are underwater eruptions, they're deep enough that essentially the pressure of the water above them 
kind of suppresses the eruption. So it happens really deep and nothing really makes it to the surface. What you might get is suddenly, weirdly, you have a whole bunch of light volcanic rocks like pumice, like the stuff you, you know, use on your hands and feet might suddenly appear at the ocean surface, but all you get is floating rocks. It's really pretty rare that you have a submarine volcano actually erupt all the way through the surface of the water and up. So how high did the eruption plume from this blast actually go? It got at least 30 kilometers high. So that puts it in the stratosphere or the upper atmosphere. And the reason that's important is when you have a really powerful volcanic eruption that puts things very high into the atmosphere, it can affect global climate. So right after the eruption, the number one question was, how do we help the Tongans? What is the disaster there? How can we get aid on the ground to assist with people? And number two question is, what are the long-term impacts of this? So when stuff gets 30 kilometers high, I mean, that's that's way up there, right? There were even satellite images that suggested some parts of the plume might have gotten, I mean, essentially almost all the way to the edge of space, 55 kilometers or so. It was just like a straight jet all the way up. It seems like one of the other really remarkable aspects of this eruption is the atmospheric waves that occurred afterwards that went across the globe. Yeah, it was really wild. So there were all sorts of atmospheric ripples that went outward, things called gravity waves that we haven't really seen from eruptions before, effects all the way up into the ionosphere, which is like even above the stratosphere. It was messing with the GPS signals up there. Pressure waves rippled all the way around the world. People who were observing atmospheric pressure anywhere could see it change dramatically as these pressure waves came through. Uh, it was it was really extraordinary. There were atmospheric effects that triggered tsunamis in other ocean basins as well, too. It was like the oceans and the atmosphere were ringing all the way around the world after this thing. So given that the island is is really challenging to get to by land, are there other ways that scientists are trying to answer questions and get more data to better understand what happened? Yeah, there's a lot of efforts going on right now to see what data they can get, what information they can get about what happened. So Closest to the eruption itself, the Tongan Geological Services have been working really hard to get samples of ash from different islands and sending them to colleagues, primarily in New Zealand, where they can analyze them and figure out, you know, what was what was the ash like that erupted. A little bit farther out, uh, there have been some teams that have been doing things like launching balloons into the eruption plume. So there were a couple of teams, uh, for instance, that were on the island of La Reunion in the Indian Ocean that basically got there as fast as they could, attached instruments to measure aerosol particles, lofted them up and measured just how high stuff was. And then, of course, from an even broader perspective, Earth observing satellites are continuing to monitor, you know, the after effects and that plume as it goes around the world. With a blast this size, you've got ash that presumably is really iron rich going into the ocean. And yet at the same time, you've got all this water vapor pulling seawater into the atmosphere. I mean, what are the effects of that kind of chemical exchange? There is a lot of really interesting geochemistry that goes on after an eruption like this. So one of those things that you mentioned, ash falling onto the ocean, at least one scientist that I talked to is looking to see whether that iron is going to fertilize a plankton bloom, essentially stimulate plankton to grow in the ocean more than it would have otherwise because it's acting as a nutrient. There are other sort of crazy things that can happen during the eruption. For instance, the fact that it erupted through seawater it brought lots of salt with it. 
And so there was in the eruption plume, there were a lot of salt crystals and salt compounds, which made it much more electrically conductive than normal. So another crazy thing about this eruption is the number of lightning strokes that were recorded in this eruption plume. Just think of this giant plume towering out of the ocean, and it's just getting nailed with flash after flash of lightning. I think there were tens of thousands of lightning strikes in you know a fraction of an hour, just absolutely ripping away. And that's because there's salts in the plume, the salts are electrically conductive, and whammo, you get lots of lightning. What do we know about what's next for this particular volcano? And does this eruption give us a new way of thinking about other submarine volcanoes around the world? What happens next with this volcano is pretty much anyone's guess. There are a lot of people watching it very closely and trying to game out what might happen. Will it just kind of burble along? Will it be fairly active? What are the chances of another enormous eruption like this? We don't really know that yet. It's really just a question of watching and waiting at this point. But this eruption does point out that there are a lot of these volcanoes, especially around the Pacific, and we probably need to pay more attention to them than we have until now. What happened on January 15th is really underscoring that these underwater things that we don't see, so we don't think about them very often, can be incredibly dangerous as well. That was Alex Witsey talking to Ariana Remmel. For more on this story, check out the show notes for a link to a feature article written by Alex. Coming up, we'll be hearing about research that's trying to figure out what humans might do in the face of climate change. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. When it comes to reindeer, it seems only some have been bitten by the travel bug. Because while many make epic migrations of more than 1,000 kilometres a year, others are content to stick closer to home. Now scientists have linked a reindeer's tendency to migrate with its genetic heritage. Researchers tracked 139 reindeer moving throughout western North America. The team then looked for genes that could explain the differences in the animal's movement patterns. They found genetic vestiges of the last ice age, when an ice sheet divided the North American reindeer into northern and southern populations. In modern reindeer, those bearing greater genetic similarity to the northern group are more migratory than those more closely related to the ancient southern population. 57 genetic mutations seemed to have especially strong associations with migration. Many are in genes that, in other animals, affect brain activity and fat storage. Logical connections given that metabolism and a sense of time could influence migration. However, because humans have fragmented reindeer habitats, the populations most inclined to migration could die out. Read that research in full in PLOS Genetics. An analysis of fossilised vomit is providing clues to the diet and anatomy of extinct pterosaurs. Researchers examined the fossilised remains of two winged reptiles and two preserved regurgitated pellets found in an ancient rock formation in northeast China. The researchers found the pellets contained the scales of a type of extinct fish. The pterosaurs, a juvenile and an adult, probably vomited them shortly before they died. 
Modern birds have stomachs divided into two chambers. One secretes digestive acids, while the other helps to break down food and stores bones, scales and other indigestible elements, which some birds then regurgitate in the form of pellets. The authors say that their findings suggest that pterosaurs also had a two-part stomach and were able to contract it to force swallowed food up into their mouths. Read that research in full in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B. Now it's time to talk about climate change. You're probably familiar with climate models, these sorts of mathematical simulations of how Earth's systems come together to make the climate. These give us an idea of how the climate was, is, and importantly, will be. This is of course key to understanding how the climate is changing as a result of human activity. However, that human activity is tricky to model. In many models, the amount of carbon humans emit tends to follow a static trajectory. But the world is a complex place, and sometimes things can change very rapidly, altering our carbon emissions. To give a recent example, in my home of the UK, coal use for electricity has rapidly declined. Last year, it was under 2%, down from 25% five years ago. Such rapid changes and the diverse ways in which society can act leave a vast range of future possibilities for human-caused emissions. And with such complexity, they're often left out of models. I think people are rightly nervous about taking something that seems complex, path-dependent, and to try and model that in any kind of confident way. And I think that is a kind of legitimate concern, but if the motivation for doing that is high enough, maybe we should have a go at it. This is Fran Moore, a climate economist from the University of California, Davis. And Fran and her team have had a go at it and have published a paper in this week's Nature looking at what societal, political and technological changes might happen in the face of climate change and how these changes would affect emissions. Now, if modelling all this sounds tricky, it's because it is. So Fran was part of an interdisciplinary team who came up with a number of societal factors that could influence emissions. Key to this was an idea of feedback processes. These are processes that can again and again increase or decrease a certain effect. In a system as complex as society, feedbacks are going to be the things that really drive change. Here's Fran with an example. So one example is what's sometimes called the learning by doing feedback. And so this is an effect where initially new energy technologies are often very expensive for a variety of reasons. But what you observe is that some installation, initially, you get going on them. And what happens is suppliers, the installers, the customers kind of learn, the supply chains kind of improve. And what happens is like those costs of that energy technology tend to decline over time as a function of installation, right? So you have some initial installation that drives down the cost of that technology, that drives further installation, that drives down the cost, that drives further installation. So by including feedbacks like this one, Fran and her team were able to come up with a model that can represent how society could change in the face of climate change and how this would impact our carbon emissions. There were several components, but to give you a flavour, here's one that they named cognition. This describes how climatic changes are perceived by people as evidence for or against climate change. Will extreme weather make people take climate change more seriously, 
Or would people bury their heads in the sand and deny that climate change is occurring? Fran and her team ran the model 100,000 times, each time tweaking slightly the different components, turning up or turning down, how their virtual people perceive different aspects of climate change and how they might act. From that, they could get an idea of how emissions would change, and as a result, what amount of warming we might expect by the end of the century. The bulk of our probability math is kind of coming in for 2100 warming, somewhere slightly less than two degrees to up to kind of two and a half to, you know, 2.8 degrees, maybe. Most of the time, warming was coming in at under 2.8 degrees, which would still lead to a range of disastrous impacts. However, in the model, it was rare that emissions didn't come down at all. And about a quarter of the time, the model suggested that emissions would decline rapidly, as in this case, more policies would be pursued to strictly limit carbon emissions. This kind of breaking down of behaviours and how they might alter emission levels is a relatively novel approach. And being able to take these known behavioural insights and play them out on a global scale impressed Ganga Shrida, a behavioural scientist who wasn't associated with this study. It sort of does address a limitation of the literature rather than thinking how do you design an intervention or what motivates people in a particular context really takes a system level perspective what's the net effect if these sort of behavioral drivers kick in and how does it sort of result in different emission scenarios and i think that's super useful but is doing so realistic taking these behavioral insights and letting them play out over decades in a virtual world ganga believes so I think it is realistic and I think it's an important exercise as well, because I think by doing so, you get a sense of actually what are the environmental implications, at least in terms of emissions, of these microprocesses and how they actually add up. Now, the paper doesn't necessarily show us what we should be doing. It was more focusing on showing what could happen. But Ganger and Fran did say it could give us some insights on what policies to focus on. By looking at the model, you can see which aspects of it were the biggest drivers of emissions. For example, the cognition component I mentioned earlier, how changes in the climate are perceived by people as evidence for or against climate change. In the model, this could have a huge impact on future emissions. If you think people are able to kind of directly kind of perceive climate change and then that has some effect on their opinion about climate change, then that kind of leads to these more aggressive, kind of very rapidly decreasing emissions. Whereas if you think people, you know, have these cognitive biases, they have imperfect perception of climate change, and in particular their political worldviews might colour their perception of the weather anomalies that they face, then in those cases you get kind of delayed climate policy. That was Fran Moore from the University of California, Davis, in the US. You also heard from Ganga Shrida from the London School of Economics and Political Science here in the UK. To find out more about this study, check out a link to the paper in the show notes. Finally, on this week's show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of science stories from the Nature Briefing. Nick, what have you brought for us to discuss this time? So, Ben, I've been reading in Nature about China's decision to have more approval for gene-edited crops. And when we say gene-edited crops, then, Nick, what do we mean? Well, it's a good question, Ben, because there are some subtleties that are important here. So, gene-edited crops are developed using technologies like CRISPR, and they make small tweaks to DNA sequences. 
Now, they differ from crops obtained by genetic modification because that involves moving entire parts of genes or DNA sequences from other plants or animal species. So until now in China, they have both had the same legislation, but the new rules coming in are going to make a distinction between the two. Right. Okay. So, I mean, what was the situation before then and what's been approved now? So currently it takes around six years for approval to be reached and you need to do extensive trials and meet all sorts of criteria. These criteria are being sort of reduced to what and the timeline for such crops to go from lab to into the real world is being reduced. So it should take about a year or two, people reckon. So where this sits in terms of the amount of restrictions in place on gene edited crops is somewhere between the European Union stance and somewhere between the US's stance. So for example, in the US, small changes that could occur naturally are allowed, whereas in the EU, all gene edited crops are treated as genetically modified organisms. So China's sitting somewhere in between there. And what sort of crops then, Nick, are researchers in China looking to work on now these rules are being changed? So it's a range of different things. So since the preliminary guidelines came out on the 24th of January, researchers have been submitting lots and lots of applications for a variety of different things. So it could be more disease-tolerant crops, it could be more drought-tolerant crops, it can even be crops that have better flavours. Now one specific example, and there was a paper that came out on this in Nature last week, is about a crop that is resistant to powdery mildew. So this is a disease that can really devastate crops. Now making it resistant to this disease can also make its growth not as good. But by combining different edits you're able to make it so it grows really well and it's also resistant to this disease so this could be one of the first examples of something that's approved under the new guidelines and what are researchers saying then nick about these new regulations well some researchers in china are quoted in this article as saying this is very good news it really opens the door for commercialization so actually getting things into the field But what's your story this week, Ben? Well, Nick, I've got a story that was also covered in Nature, and it's a good news story. It's the lowest ever recorded numbers of a very painful parasitic disease called guinea worm. Well, that does sound like a good news story, but I must confess I don't know much about this. Can you tell me what guinea worm is? So people and animals can be infected with guinea worm by drinking water contaminated with its larvae. And the parasite spends about a year growing inside the host, sometimes reaching a metre long before poking out of the skin maybe the feet or the legs and and it waits for the host to go near water so it can release its larvae and start the cycle again and this emergence nick is extremely painful and can take up to six weeks from what i understand and can be hugely debilitating and can prevent people working or even walking in some cases well it certainly sounds nasty so what are the new numbers for this well nick in 2021 there were just 14 cases reported in humans and that was from four countries in sub-saharan africa chad sudan angola and cameroon and for some context that's a drop from 27 cases in 2020 and a drop from over three and a half million a year back in the 1980s and so this is you know a huge drop in this time period and it's the result of efforts by international organizations and and governments and i think what's especially remarkable about this nick is that there's no recognized treatment or vaccine for guinea worm so eradication campaigns have really focused on preventing transmission Mm, and how do you go about preventing transmission of this well contaminated water here is really really important for this disease and it has quite a recognizable cycle as, as i've laid out there as well and this is what makes it relatively straightforward 
to detect. And in many ways, it's old school epidemiology that's done the business here. So in Chad, where seven of the cases were detected, field agents created a network to track contaminated water sources and prevent people from drinking them and you know using pesticides to kill the larvae. And this approach has worked in other places as well, which is what's keeping these numbers so low. And you said there's 14 cases in the last year. Is there any effort to you know, get it all the way down to zero? I mean, those efforts are continuing, Nick, absolutely. But it's quite a tricky one then, eradication. And it's difficult because guinea worm doesn't just infect humans. In Chad, again, there were 790 reported guinea worm cases in dogs last year. Um, But animal cases were down 45 percent in 2021 so moving in the right direction there and the hope of course is that guinea worm can be eradicated and it will join quite a short list of diseases that have been purposely eradicated in human history smallpox and rinderpest which was a disease that affected cattle are the only two so far so i really really hope that in the not too distant future we can come on to the briefing chat and say that humanity's got there Well, Ben, I look forward to that time where we come on and say this has been eradicated. But for now, listeners, if you want more on these stories and you want to know how you can sign up to The Nature Briefing to hear more science stories like these, then you can check out the show notes for some links. And that's all for this week's show. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or you can send us an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Petrichel. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.